Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 21, Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 to 32. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's probably a Black Pew Bible in front of you that you can grab, and you can look on page 62 if you want to follow along. And let's stand, if you are willing and able, for the reading of God's word from Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 through 32. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with a staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes a slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Well, what are we going to do with this passage this morning? Uh, Earlier in the week, I received an email from a church member. And she was preparing for this, you know, for the sermon the week. And so she was reading the passage ahead of time. And she wrote me and she said, it's a mix of make sense and what? Question mark, question mark. And this is how most of us feel about this section of Exodus. The laws directly after the Ten Commandments, called the Book of the Covenant, is very difficult to understand. Usually we breeze by them in our Bible reading plans because, well, this is not the world in which we inhabit, right? Uh, We can't really connect with laws about altars and oxen and 
and uh, slaves. What's more, part of it seems really harsh. Death penalty for all sorts of infractions. And of course, we ask ourselves, we don't follow those laws, so do we really need to keep them? We don't need to keep them anyways, right? So what's the point? And so we read by them really quickly. There's actually an old TV show called The West Wing. And there's a well-known scene where the president of the show goes on a tirade against this uh, right-wing fundamentalist Christian. And he's kind of fed up with this Christian woman. And uh, she has a radio show and all these things. And he says to her, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent in Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? Or is it okay to call the police? Well, this is how most people critique Christians and Christianity. That they cherry pick things in the Bible and they ignore those things that are maybe more barbaric or maybe we feel is backwards in the Bible. You might point to the Bible and you might say marriage is between a man and a woman. But do you also believe a child should face the death penalty for cursing their parents? So how do we interpret passages like this and apply sections of scripture like this? I think there's a lot that can be said here. But very briefly, there is a long tradition of distinguishing the laws in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic law, into three parts. Into moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. There's a lot of overlap between these types of laws, but that's how some people will distinguish these laws. And what we have before us are civil laws. And most interpreters agree that these laws are not our laws. Yet we can still apply the principles from those laws to our lives. Remember the context here in Exodus. God is establishing right now the nation of Israel and what they are going to be like. God is their king. And right now, they are a theonomy. They are a, a, a nation based off of God being their king. So the nation's laws and spiritual concerns are really intertwined. But now that Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled many of the types and shadows and patterns of the Old Testament, the people of God are no longer a body politic to be identified with any particular nation or kingdom in the world. Rather, God establishes the church. And when he establishes the church, it is made up of people of every tribe and every people and every nation all over the world. So the civil code that we see before us is not a code that we are to enact for our land because the United States is not Israel and we are not a Christian nation in this way. What we see in the laws before us is the application of the Ten Commandments for the particular context of Israel at this moment in time. But while we are not Israel, we can glean from these laws principles that are to permeate the society of his people. And so this morning, I want to take some time to do 
two things. First, I want to be able to walk through the passage with you. I just want to walk through these laws, provide some brief explanation. that will take up about half of our time, and then we'll just close with three principles. Uh, three principles of justice that we can see from these laws. So let's first look at these laws. Now, at first, when we're taking a look at these, we think, oh, it's just this mixture of laws. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no organization. But there really is some if we look very carefully. These laws are divided into three sections. Capital crimes, personal injury, and criminal negligence. Those three sections is what we see. So capital crimes uh, in verses 12 through 17. Capital crimes are crimes that demand the death penalty. And the first example of that is in verse 12 with premeditated murder. If you murder someone intentionally, with cunning, you're put to death. But there's an exception in verses 13, in verse 13 and 14, that goes on to provide some exceptions for involuntary manslaughter, meaning if it wasn't planned. Uh, it might have been a crime of passion. Um, it, it, it might have been an accident. And God says, I've appointed a place for you to flee. So if you accidentally run over somebody with a wagon, if you get into a fight with somebody in self-defense, kill them, God provided these cities of refuge. This is very important because in the ancient Middle Eastern culture, private justice and vigilante law and blood feuds were very common. In other words, if you kill my son, I had every right to come after you and kill you in return. No matter what the reason is. But in Numbers, God appointed six cities of refuge, sanctuary cities that he could flee to, where a killer, when they reach that city, can hold on to the horns of these, the, the altar of God, and he couldn't be touched. And this allowed for a cooling off period until people could kind of really figure out what was going on for all the procedures to happen and to investigate the crime properly. But if the man's crime ended up being deliberate, verse 14 says, not even the altar can save him. The second capital crime we see, see is kind of surprising. According to God's law, whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. And then if you skip down to verse 17, it says, if you curse your father or mother, you shall be put to death. Now, it's really important to note that the word striking here is not just a, a fist bump, Okay. The word striking here means you want to put them to death. This is attempted murder. That's the kind of very serious word that is being used here. And secondly, that word cursing isn't referred to a mumble under a breath like, oh, you're so old, I hate you, that type of mumbling. Uh, that's not what's being mentioned here. If, if that were so, no teenagers would exist in Israel, right? No, this is, a single, this is not a single act of disrespect, but a total repudiation of any parental authority. He says, I wish you were dead, and so on and so forth. We talked about this when we looked at the fifth commandment, but honoring father and mother is very important. Why is that so important? Because we talked about how it's the foundation of civilization. We talked about the family as the building blocks of society and civilizations, and a person who can dishonor parents is capable of the most drastic spiritual errors. So this was taken very seriously. Verse 16 is the third capital crime that is listed. And we encountered this last week in our study on slavery. 
Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So, in other words, in a biblical worldview, the whole transatlantic slave trade should never should have been outlawed from the very outset, from the very beginning. It doesn't matter if you didn't do the actual stealing, if you were even in possession of someone kidnapped, you were liable to consequences. You were liable to the death penalty. So what we have in these early verses are three types of capital offenses, all based off of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Do not murder, honor your father and mother, and do not steal. Some acts of violence, however, do not lead to death, which brings us to the second category, that of personal injuries. Verse 18, we're presented with a situation when a fight breaks out. It's a heat of the moment kind of thing. If you beat someone up and he doesn't die, no capital punishment. If the person gets up, walks around with a staff, he goes outdoors, meaning he's going to make a recovery. Well, you owe the man health insurance and workman's comp. That's basically what it says. You pay for his medical expenses. You, you pay for the time he, he lost and lost wages. In verse 20, in the next paragraph, when a slave is struck, male or female, and they die, they are avenged. Another way of saying you'll be put to death. Notice that capital punishment was not just administered if a male was put to death, but also when a female is put to death, and even that of a slave. They had equal rights under the law. But in verse 21, if the slave survives, he is not avenged, for the slave is his money. Now, we read that and we say, that sounds really crass, because it sounds like that's his possession. But it's saying, ordinarily, a person must pay the injured person's health and medical expenses and recovery and all those types of things. We just saw that in the earlier case law. But since this is a master-slave relationship, he cannot compensate himself for the lost productivity of his slave. He's saying, essentially, he shot himself in the foot. Of course, that doesn't mean the owner suffers no other consequences. We see later in verses 26 and 27 that if a slave suffers any kind of lasting injury, they go free. They go free. Verse 22, we see that sometimes a person can get hurt being an innocent bystander. Here the law considers the case, inj- uh, uh, the case of an injury to a third party in verse 22. Two men are in the middle of a fight, and inadvertently they strike a pregnant woman. Obviously she is hurt. But if there is no harm to the child, then the woman's husband would impose a fine, and a judge would determine the compensation for that kind of offense. But if there is harm against the child, it says, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We'll pick up more on that phrase later, but you see clearly a special care for the woman and also for the unborn. The Mosaic law here considers that unborn is a person with rights, not merely a mass of tissues, not just a potential life but a human person. Beginning in verse 28, we see our last and third and last category 
of laws, that of criminal negligence. Here it involves someone getting hurt or even killed because someone failed to do, failed to be careful. So the laws for negligence in Exodus 21 mainly have to do with animals because animals are unpredictable and uh, sometimes they attack without warning. So in verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, it gets, that animal gets put down. But the animal's owner is not punished. And so accidents happen. You have a dog, you're not sure what's going to happen. The dog bites somebody, well, the animal gets put down. Okay. But the owner is not at fault. But negligence is not okay. In verse 28, it says if the ox has a habit of this, you have a crazy bull in your pen but you forget to pen them up, you don't take the right precautions, then the animal is killed and so are you. You're responsible because you should have known better. Now, of course, the law provides a victim's family to show mercy by demanding restitution uh, instead of retribution. So rather than the death penalty, they could demand a severe fine. And what's more, in the case of a slave, the same penalty still applies except the owner of the ox has to also pay the slave owner for an extra 30 shekels for the loss of a slave. So these laws on criminal negligence is kind of like owning a car. The law says you have to have insurance. If you get into an accident with somebody, you can help them and you can pay for their loss. But you also have a responsibility that the car is in good working order. Uh, if you haven't done an oil change in a long time, if, you, if your brakes are wearing thin, if it's really dirty so you can barely see out the window, uh, if your tires are bald, and you know sometimes the engine just stops in the middle of the road, well, if you get into an accident with that kind of car and you kill someone, you have been negligent. You should have just ponied up the money, got it fixed, or just gotten rid of it. Now, we've gone over a lot, and you might still be scratching your head about these laws, but you might be surprised at how relevant these laws really are. And let me just close with three principles, three principles concerning justice from these laws. The first is this, the principle of responsibility to love your neighbor. The principle of responsibility. It's interesting how practical the Bible really can be, right? Uh, God gives you the Ten Commandments. He says, here's Ten Commandments for everyone, for all time. Which is, can be summed up as love God and love your neighbor. It's like, okay, that sounds really good. Well, what does it mean to love your neighbor? What does it look like to love your neighbor? Well, in the Old Testament, it meant keep an eye on your ox. It's just, it's one thing to say, oh, I love my neighbor as myself. I, I want to do mercy and justice. Okay, but you have a crazy cow. All right? And that's hurting people. So loving your neighbor might mean putting a fence around the swimming pool. Uh, it might mean don't text and drive. It might mean keeping your dog on the leash. It might mean having safety protocols in the church and signs that tell you, you know, the emergency exits, whatever it might mean. There, these are things we ought to know instinctively, but loving our neighbor requires a hundred little things. It requires forethought. 
it requires time, it requires, it requires following through. If you want to love your neighbor, you have to be responsible. So the principle of responsibility. Second, we glean from these laws the preciousness of life. That comes out in a variety of ways in the passage, doesn't it? The prohibition against forced slavery, the penalties that even for an ox that gores someone or even the laws on capital punishment, we look at them and we say, this is so harsh. And at the same time, they seem cruel, but what is it showing? What is it displaying? It is displaying a high view of life. It's the rock-solid conviction that life is precious. Human life is not based on class. If you kill a slave, you die. And it's not based on gender. You insult father or mother, male or female. You suffer consequences. Did you know that in some ancient Near Eastern literature, that you only receive the death penalty if it was, if you wronged somebody of a higher class. And that still happens today. You only receive the death penalty sometimes only if you have harmed a male, but a female might be okay. But we see here in the Bible that all human life is precious. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. Genesis 9 talks about this principle. Genesis 9, 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, reason, God made man in his own image. There is an accountability for taking human life. That's how seriously God takes it. It is an assault any assault on human life is an assault against the image of God. Because life is precious. If you've been here for any stretch of time here at Redeemer, you know that we don't make a habit of making political statements or pronouncements from this pulpit. We simply go verse by verse through the Bible. Chapter by chapter through the Bible. When it comes to preaching... There's no soapboxes. We just preach the next verse because we let God's word determine the trajectory of our church. But here's one of those verses that you can't go through Exodus 21 and not say something about abortion. Because in verse 22 through 25, God in his word considers the life in the womb to be a human person, precious and deserving of honor and protection. Despite the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we're still a nation out of about a dozen countries that continue to allow for abortions for any reason beyond 15 weeks. Only 13 of our 50 states currently ban abortion. The FDA now allows retail pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens to dispense abortion pills. The Justice Department has cleared it so that abortion pills can be mailed to those states in which abortion is banned. It's as if our nation is still continuing to bend over backwards, even after the death of 60 million unborn children over the past 40 years. It's as if that's not been enough. 
book. I'm not trying to get political here. It's exegetical. It's in our text. We see the intrinsic value placed upon life in the womb in this text. And many of us have heard that principle before. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Did you know that in our passage today, that is in the context of a child in the womb? I know this is a, this can be a painful issue, a sensitive issue. Whenever we talk about children, it always is. Because some of us have lost children in the womb. Some of you aren't able to have children. And some of you are trying to have them. And there may be some women here who have had abortions. There may be men or family members here who have pressured people to have abortions. And you need to hear me clearly from the foot of the cross that that is not the unforgivable sin. It is not. But built right into the law of God is an affirmation of the full dignity of the unborn and at a time when euthanasia seems to be seems to be called justice, at a time when violence and murder are so commonplace that we don't blink an eye anymore when we see news reports of people being shot, at a time when the horrific trade in abducted women and girls forced into prostitution and slavery for the pleasures of wicked men continues to be an epidemic, at such a time, isn't it important for to he- us to hear from the word of God, life matters. Human life is sacred wherever it is found. We see from these laws the principle of responsibility and the preciousness of life. And third, we see that the punishment shall fit the crime. In verse 24, we see eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And it's sometimes called lex talionis. It's Latin for the law of the tooth. And normally when this is quoted in society, it's quoted as a law of vengeance. It means you do something to me, I get to do it right back to you. So you gouge out my eye, I have a right to gouge out your eye. And so Gandhi popularly said, Eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. But that is not what this law is about. It's an idiom, not literal, that teaches that punishment should be proportional. The principle is to exact justice, not identical retribution. How do we know this? Because in verse 26 and 27, we have an example of an eye and a tooth getting injured. And it doesn't say, oh, you injured their eye. Well, knock out the master's eye then. No, it says the slave goes free. All of these laws, in fact, that we've read, except for maybe the very first one with capital punishment, with premeditated murder, are do, do not talk about retribution. So it's not a literal law. In fact, this law is an expression of moderation. It's meant to curtail any kinds of personal vengeance that might even go too far, excessive punishment, because we know what it's like to want to take revenge. And do more than take out their eye. I mean, think about how popular revenge movies are these days. Uh, movies like Taken, 
where a daughter is kidnapped and a man with a particular set of skills goes on a rampage in four days to rescue his daughter and kills 31 people in the movie. Or we just think about Kill Bill, where a bride takes vengeance for the death of her husband and child by slaughtering over 100 people. Or John Wick, where his dog gets killed. It's a dog. And I know there's so many of you who love dogs, but it's a dog. And he goes on this catharsis of killing 77 people in just the first installment of the films. And there is something in us, isn't there, that wants more than an eye for an eye. So far from being excessively cruel, Lex Talonis was a prescription for equity in punishment. The punishment should fit the crime. And Jesus further clarifies this law in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard in Matthew 5, you have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he doing away with this law? Jesus is correcting a misapplication of the law, a misapplication of lex talionis. In, in Jesus' day, just like today, people would use it as an, ex, an excuse to exchange cruelty for cruelty. People would look at this law and in effect become their own judge, jury, and executioner. God's law was turned to an individual kind of license to, to maybe undermine civil laws, civil justice. And Jesus says, that's not what the, the law is about. The law is actually about making things right when we hurt someone else. It's not about getting what we have coming to us when someone hurts us. You don't apply this law only when you feel the other person needs to be punished. Rather, when we are in the wrong, we need to always make things right. And we ought to do everything that justice requires. But when someone else does us wrong, we do not have to insist on strict justice. Instead, we have an opportunity to offer mercy. This is what Jesus called his people to do. This is what Jesus calls us to do because this is what Jesus did. Jesus suffered all kinds of insults and injuries on his way to the cross. Did he demand wound for wound, bruise for bruise? No. Isaiah says, I, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. First Peter 2 when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, God finds all life to be precious. Everyone made in the image of God is precious to him, but he is also a God of justice. And the punishment must always fit the crime. And that is our problem. Because we are sinners. Because we've fallen short of the glory of God, we are outrageous, treasonous, God-belittling, self-exalting rebels against God. And our God, who is an infinitely holy God, and the punishment that is deserved is an eternity of wrath before him. That is just punishment. That is why he sent his son to die on the cross. You see, God sending his son to die in our place was not an overreaction. It is a commentary on the gravity 
of our rebellion. The punishment on Jesus at the cross fit the crimes we've committed. Only a God-man could bear an infinite punishment for all those who would turn to embrace him. That is the only refuge that we have. Christian, non-Christian, that is the refuge we have that we can flee to in all our sins, in all our shortcomings. It is to flee to the foot of the cross and receive the mercy of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, through our brief study of these verses, we see that you are a God who exacts justice. And yet we also see threads of mercy throughout. And we remember that we, as your sons and daughters, are debtors to your mercy alone. So, Father, we ask that we would tell others of the good news that awaits them. The good news that sins can be forgiven and refuge can be found in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to